This is the 121 Community Church Podcast. For more information about 121, visit us at 121cc.com. You've been listening to the 121 Community Church Podcast. For more information about There are uh, books that I'll return to again and again CC. that are favorites for me over the years that God used to just really impact my, uh, my understanding of something, and, uh, and there are just critical junctures where God does that. I suppose He does the same uh, with you with different things as well. Uh, in the mid-90s, I was exposed to a man named Henry Nowen, in uh, this book, uh, The Way of the Heart, uh, is uh, a book that became uh, really instrumental uh, in my thinking about the disciplines of solitude and silence. Uh, and Nowen describes uh, solitude, he describes silence, he describes prayer. He also introduced me to a group of people that I was unfamiliar with uh, until uh, this time, and uh, they're the desert fathers and mothers uh, of the uh, fourth century. Uh, at the time, Constantine had made Christianity legal, uh, and so for the first time since Christ, the, uh, the idea of Christianity was the legal religion uh, of the, the empire, uh, and what that ended up doing was creating a bunch of people who didn't really know Jesus, but uh, claimed uh, of, of faith because they had to, because the government said they had to. Uh, and there were several that were afraid that if they stayed in uh, the cities, uh, that they would end up being manipulated and conformed to the society uh, that was being shaped and formed, and that their hearts uh, would not be shaped by Christ. And, and they fled to the desert, some for days, some for months, some for uh, years, literally, uh, they would spend in the desert alone with God. And when we think about solitude as a discipline, uh, think about it this way. It is that carved out space to spend alone with God. It is the base discipline for all disciplines. If we're not able to do the discipline of solitude, then we're not able to read God's Word. We're not able to study God's Word. We're not able to memorize God's Word. We're not able uh, to uh, meditate, memorize, and hide God's Word. We're not able to pray if there's not space first set aside to do so. And the desert fathers and mothers modeled the way of what it was to be in the presence of God for extended periods of time, and it's there that they learned how to be silent and still. Now you say, I thought we were supposed to be in the world. I thought we were supposed to be uh, making disciples. I thought we were supposed to be engaging a culture that's far away from God. Interestingly, this, the desert fathers and mothers had some of the greatest impact on the culture of the day because people would go to them for wisdom and insight because they had been the ones sitting before God. They impacted their culture greatly by separating out and then re-engaging. It's the same rhythm that God has invited us into is that time with Him and we settle and we're still and quiet and we leave that space and we leave that space. We engage a world that's hostile towards Him uh, and we're able to encounter it the way Jesus did. And the reason I say this today is I want us to think about these ideas when we think about how Jesus Himself uh, spent uh, his conversations with those who were accusers of him. H how will we, in conversation, respond in truth and love to people who make accusations against us that are untrue accusations? 
How will we respond today? It's already occurring. We don't have to imagine this. This is what is occurring in our culture. How will we respond when people accuse us as Christians of being haters? How will we respond to a culture that accuses us of being bigots? How will we respond to a culture that responds to our Christian morality and says, no, you're dangerous to our society and we need to eliminate you so that you can't corrupt our culture in the way that we see what is the right morality for the day? How will we respond to that? We learn from Jesus on the day he went to the cross how to do so. And I'd like for us to think about two ideas just flowing through and how we have conversation, and that is timely silence and timely words. That our silence is weighty and appropriate for the moment, and that our words are the same. I want to draw from Nowen's book for our subheadings of each section, just some things and insights he gives us. Before we do that, I want to show you something that we've been doing over the last several weeks as a resource for you. We've been doing like two to two and a half minute long video recaps of each week, simply given the framework of the way Jesus had conversations. We know that we struggle as a whole in our culture with how to have conversations with truth and grace. We're learning from Jesus how to do so. And so we've just summed them up so that you could go back again and again uh, and, and try and think through, okay, how do I have a conversation like Jesus did? Uh, the, one, the week that Jordan preached, Jordan did the video. The week Jermaine preached, Jermaine did the vi video. When Eric preached, he did the video. The weeks I've done it, I've done the videos. I want to give you just one sample of that so you at least know what we've got sitting out there. In John chapter 8, we see a story, uh, an encounter of Jesus with a, a woman who is caught in adultery and with a group of religious leaders. There's two sins going on here, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders and the uh, immorality uh, of the woman. We see Jesus having two different conversations, and uh, the religious leader is trying to trap him. Uh, and what we learn from him in this and how to have a conversation with those who try to trap us uh, is that... Uh, people try to use others and exploit them, exploit people, uh, and then they take Scripture and try to manipulate Scripture. Uh, and that's exactly what happens in this case. And we need to be able to discern when that's occurring. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we'll discern when people are doing that. Once that comes, then we learn from Jesus to thoughtfully and calmly uh, look for ways uh, for the other person to self-reflect. Uh, he didn't jump in with an answer. Uh, he allowed them to persist with their questions until finally uh, he gave them something to think about and to reflect on. And, uh, and then he patiently waited for them to respond. He, he didn't step in and try to answer for them, to let them off the hook. He just allowed uh, them to think and reflect on what he had said and they came to their own conclusions, their own heart issues. And there's another conversation Jesus had with this woman, and he turned his attention to her, and we learned from him uh, to offer a compassion and a freedom uh, to those who are caught in sin. Uh, and Jesus is gracious and compassionate, 
towards her and in the same way we learn from him uh, to have a compassion toward those uh, who are caught in any kind of sin uh, against him. Uh, and in those two dialogues, uh, we learn from Jesus, again, how to have conversations with different kinds of people. People are interested in the things of God or of Christ. In John chapter 8, we, we see We want to make sure we've left margin in our schedule so that we too can spend that time with them. I hope this will be helpful and that you'll practice and just try and really think through how you could have this kind of dialogue uh, with someone that doesn't know Christ. I wish I would have listened to my own teaching this week. Lisa and I are looking for a storm door for our front door, and uh, we were at Lowe's, and uh, I invited the two guys who helped us. They're very knowledgeable about doors and really helpful, uh, and I invited them to Easter, and, and it was pretty cool because one of the guys said, somebody at your church uh, is my neighbor, uh, and just spoke so highly of them. You just love hearing it when uh, someone speaks well of those who are a part of who we are here. And, uh, but then later I was thinking, oh my, I was just standing there in the midst of all these doors. I mean, it was just like gift wrap for me of, of how to, uh, to share the gospel and just leave a message about Jesus here. And I thought, okay, there's all these doors. I could have said, Jesus said he was the door that leads to life. How cool that you guys work with doors. I mean, I was just kind of, it was just kind of running through my head and I thought it was a storm door. I mean, so it was just a, like a big window with a frame, right? And I thought, oh, the Bible is just like that window. If you just read your Bible and you just see so clearly who God is. And I thought, as this conversation with myself, it did no good for anybody. And it was after the fact and I failed. Uh, but that's how we learn, isn't it? As we reflect on conversations, how we could actually have those kinds of uh, dialogues, create interest with people uh, in who Jesus is. And um, my hope is next time I'll be uh, more prepared, but I hope those will be helpful uh, for you. Uh, as I said, I want to think about uh, timely silence, timely words, looking at how Jesus responded to his accusers. Uh, he had been up all night long on the, the Thursday night coming into Friday morning, uh, and then he has three different dialogues, uh, probably more than that, but the but main ones are with the Sanhedrin. It's a council. It's kind of a kangaroo court uh, that put him on a, a little mock trial. Uh, and then he stood before Pilate, the Roman governor. In the middle of that, Pilate's a weasel. He's trying to get out of it. And so he sends him off to Herod to see if somebody else can help him out. And then he makes his way back to Pilate. So I want to look at those three dialogues and see uh, how Jesus responded, both with the right silence and the right kind uh, of words, drawing from Nowen's ideas uh, about silence. This is what he said as we move into Mark chapter 14. That'll be our first launch point. But much can be said without much being spoken. Much can be said without much being spoken. Now, Nowen talks about his chapter in here that this is a wordy world that we live in. We have words flying everywhere, and he's arguing that much can be said without much being spoken, and that is a reality of Jesus when we watch his encounter in Mark 14. At this point, he's been arrested. He is being brought before his accusers. It's the Sanhedrin. Some of you, for in your past, you may understand who the Sanhedrin is. Others might not. 
Uh, it was the ruling council for the Jewish people. There were 70 of these guys uh, for Pharisees and Sadducees. And then there was one more, the high priest, who actually led this ruling council. Now, how 71 people can make a good decision together, I have no idea. Uh, however, we do say it didn't make great decisions, so that might be a case uh, for it. But this is who they're finding themselves before, uh, or Jesus before, and they're trying to find testimony against him, and they can't find any. Now, how cool would that be? That if anybody in our culture, anybody in your workspace, any neighbor, that if they were looking for a way to bring you down, they couldn't do it because you're a person of integrity, a person of high character. The only way they could bring you down is to make something up. And that's exactly what they're doing with Jesus. There are those who are in the group, and they're kind of yelling out these false testimonies and things about Jesus and, uh, and trying to get him to buckle. And then finally, the high priest says to Jesus, do you not answer? You're, you're listening to all of this. You're listening to these accusations. Why are you not defending yourself? Why, why are you not answering the question? In verse 61, he kept silent and did not answer. Now, this is what we know about Jesus. This is a, I think this is a decent summary of him and the way he responded to things. If there was an injustice, if there's somebody that is a perpetrator of injustice, then Jesus spoke out strongly against it. If someone is suffering an injustice, poor, weak, vulnerable, Jesus went to their defense. If someone was attacking him, he did not defend himself. We're the most like Jesus when we're not defensive, not defending ourselves not defending our own honor, not defending our own character. But when we're speaking out against the perpetrator and when we're speaking out against the one who the injustice is being done. And then Jesus spoke out strongly against those who would do anything to inhibit the faith of someone. Children included. He said, it would be better for you that a millstone is hung around your neck and you're thrown into the ocean than for you to cause one of these little children to stumble. I, I would fear today if I were one of the adults leading the charge to the harm that is being done to our children across the country. I would fear that day before God. But Jesus did not defend himself. Don't you answer? Why are you not answering the question? Jesus was timely in his silence. He kept silent. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In verse 61, they persisted when they're in the story in John chapter 8. Uh, they had to keep coming at him. Jesus was not on someone else's time schedule. He kept silent. He answered when he was ready. In verse 62, Jesus said, it's a packed, timely answer. He said, I am 
and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. They are clear words, powerful words. He's quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Psalm 110, verse 1. He's saying, and they know it when he says it, he is claiming to be the Messiah from the scriptures. He's essentially saying that he is God. And at this point, the high priest tears off his clothes, and he tears his clothes, and he starts yelling, blasphemy. This is an insult to God, what Jesus is saying. His words were, he was silent. And then when he spoke, it was packed with power. Timely silence, timely words. He had something to say when he actually spoke. Now, transition happens here. They, uh, the problem for the, the Jewish leaders at this point is they didn't have the authority to execute Jesus. Uh, and they wanted him dead. Uh, they needed the Roman authorities uh, to be able to finish off uh, what they were starting at this point. So we move to John chapter 18, uh, and I'm going to summarize 28 to 32, and then we'll pick up in verse 33. But when we think about now and what he has to say, <clears throat> this is what I would say our idea here is, that a word not rooted in silence is a weak, powerless word. <clears throat> a word not rooted in silence is a weak, and powerless word. Words that are rooted in silence, those are the words that bring strength into a conversation. Jesus brings strength to what he says. Now we have this little back and forth going <clears throat> between Pilate and um, the Jewish leaders. They didn't care for each other. There was no love lost between them. Uh, they were just maneuvering to get something done. Uh, it was what they were kind of doing here. Uh, and as this little uh, power struggles going on between uh, Pilate and the Jewish leaders, uh, Jesus is standing there. And I love what somebody said in thinking about this. Okay, so you've got this little power struggle going on, this little battle going on between uh, these, these people, and Jesus is standing there silent, and he's actually the one with the power. Now, don't interpret him just standing there as weakness. Jesus is gentle, and gentleness means strength under control. He was absolutely under control, and he knew exactly what was going on. So here's this little power struggle going on, just like we have our little power struggles that go on all the time, and it's like we forget that Jesus is standing there, and he's actually the one with the power to do something. We pick up in verse 33. It says, therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And at this point, Jesus will choose to answer. He said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? I, th I think that's an interesting question. And if we take anything away from Jesus, when he asked really good questions and that's Oftentimes, his he wanted to understand if you really knew why you were asking what you were asking. The apologetics teachers we've had over the years, I think the, one of the best questions they've given us to work with is when we're dealing with issues in our culture, to ask the person that we're visiting with or talking to, uh, how, how did you come to that conclusion? 
What is your basis for what you're saying? And then we actually begin to understand, have they thought through what they're saying? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's sort of to me as a little bit insulting. It's kind of like, uh, did you come up with this question on your own, or did you just listen to everybody else, and so you came up with the question? And I'm kind of embarrassed when I read things like this, because I read headlines of stuff, and I'm dangerous, because I don't read the rest of the story, and then I talk about it like I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm just repeating the news cycle that someone else uh, said I was supposed to say. That's what he's saying. Have you actually put any thought into this? Or is this just something that uh, someone else uh, is bringing to you? So Pilate answered, he said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest. So no, I haven't really thought about this. Your own, your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. So what have you done? A logical question. You know, we're, we're here. Uh, so what is it that you did? And Jesus answered him. It's timely. It's concise. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He answers his question, what have you done, by describing his kingdom. And he, he just says to him, look, if I, if I was interested in what you've got right now, it'd be game on. We'd have the swords out. There'd be a fight happening right now. We'd be moving towards an overthrow. That, that's what we would be doing. But my kingdom's not of this world. Your piddly little government is not really my concern right now. It's not your kingdom I'm worried about. My kingdom is not of this world. And we know from the outset when Jesus entered as an adult, he said, the way you enter into my kingdom is to repent and believe. My kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. The problem is the human heart. And Jesus Christ occupies the human heart, and that's where he sets up his kingdom. My kingdom, it's, it's, it's not of this world. We're not going to fight you over it. This isn't what it's about. My kingdom, it's not of this realm. Then Pilate said to him, verse 37, you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I think Jesus uh, really nails what's going on in our culture today right here. And if anything, we have a major identity crisis going on. People don't know who they are. And I think I've read this before. Maybe I'm off. I think I'm in the hunt. We're one of the first cultures in human history that is trying to find our primary identity from within ourselves rather than it coming from outside of ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is really making an identity statement here. He knows why he was born. He knows why he's here. Earlier in John 14, he knows where he's going. You can be really confident when you know where you came from, when you know who you are today, and when you know where you're headed. You can stand really firm, and you can stand really strong, 
And you can be really confident and you can walk in humility and offer love and grace and truth when you know from which you've come. And you know who you are and you know what your purpose is and you know where your morality derives from. And you know where you're headed when this all wraps up. It makes for a whole different way to do life. It's a place of strength. Jesus is coming from a place of strength because he knows who he is. I would ask you that question. Do you know who you are? Do you understand how God sees you? Have you looked through that storm door window of God's word to see who he is and who you are? He formed me in my mother's womb. I know that. He he predestined me, according to Ephesians 1, to be his child before all eternity. I was already in his thoughts. He's numbered my days. I don't know the end of them. I just know I've been given these so far. He's given me a purpose in life to love him and to glorify him. He's defined my morality. I don't have to look around and wonder what the culture tells me today is my morality. And I know where I'm going when I'm done. Do you? Has the kingdom of God broken into your heart genuinely? This isn't a church attendance question. It's not do I serve at my church question. It's not, um, it's, it's nothing like that. It's a heart question between you and Jesus. Where does your identity lie? When we're confident in who we are, we actually have the hope and the privilege then of bringing hope to people who are in identity chaos right now. Well, Pilate listens to him. He says, okay, what have you done? He describes his kingdom. He said, okay, so you're a king. Yes, you say I'm a king. That's right. Uh, and then Pilate said, well, what is truth? You said everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Good question, by the way, to know uh, if we know Jesus or not. Do we hear the truth? And Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth. Are we hearing from him in his word? Are we responding to truth? Jesus said, and what you'll know it. The ones who are of me, they hear truth. Not a made-up truth. Truth. Objective truth of God. You know the truth, the truth will set you free, he says. And Pilate asks, he's intrigued for just a moment, what is truth? But you know what? He doesn't stay there to hear an answer. That to me is one of the biggest bummers in our culture. How many people, they're wondering, what is the truth? But they won't stick around long enough to hear it. Or we start talking and their mind's already running. They can't hear it. Oh, my prayer this week is that people will hear the truth. That hearts will be stirred and ignited for Jesus Christ himself. 
that those who've been stagnant or stale, those who are stuck in unbelief, those who are without a church at the moment, those who have been, uh, as some, I heard somebody describe the other day, I haven't heard this term before, uh, is church hurt. It just had a hurt at the church and just hadn't made their way back. By the way, I know what happens on the hurts. I just haven't heard someone say church hurt. And we have the opportunity this week to invite people to come. They might come on Easter. Some people will still do it twice a year. They'll come Christmas and Easter. And sometimes they're willing to honor their mother and come a third time. But this week, we have the, tr- we have the truth And we have a gazillion options. This will be the Easter of all Easters of options. There's a Saturday night couple of options. There's a sunrise service at 6.45 a.m. Why 6.45? Because the sunrise is at 7.12, and we're going to watch it rise. And then 8 o'clock, we're going to have a contemplative service. At 9.15 and 11, we're coming right back here. At 5 o'clock, our Spanish service is going to happen And then there's multiple online options. There is just options galore. I've loved COVID in this sense. We've tried things we would not normally have tried. And God has done things that only he can get credit for because we would never have done them the way we're doing them. Who knows what God will do this coming week. Now, I hate COVID for a lot of other reasons, but I love it for the way God's worked, done things for his glory, his honor. God does things his way. Psalm 115.3, that's what he says. So when we think about truth, that's what's happening there. And if you want to get truth again in John 14.6, call Jermaine, our youth pastor, and, and list, blow up his phone this week uh, and just listen to his voicemail. Uh, he's had John 14.6 on there for years, uh, and I love that he's unswerving, uncompromising. And then I would say this to people, that when you hear the statement that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no no one comes to the Father except through Him. There's not other options. He is the option. He is the way. He is truth. I also want you to know it's really safe for you to raise the question if you don't believe that. If we can't have those conversations in our life groups, then we're in trouble. We should be able to have conversations in truth and love around difficult issues, around things we don't understand, around things that are hard for us. And if you can't wrestle with that question within the church, I don't know where you wrestle with it in a real way. I just want you to know it's a safe place to ask your questions. Uh, A lot of grace and mercy as we figure all this out. Well, it was their custom at the Passover to release someone, and uh, Barabbas was the one that uh, was about to be offered up. Uh, Pilate has uh, figured out at this point, this is just a charade for him. Uh, Jesus is not a political threat. Uh, like the Jews are making him out to be. And, and he's just trying to make himself out to look uh, somewhat uh, good, uh, I guess. Uh, and when we think about Pilate uh, and kind of the way he rolls, he, he's like a case study for fear of man. Uh, I didn't even know that was a thing until a few years ago. And then I realized that's the thing that identifies the sin uh, that I probably struggle with uh, as one of the most. Uh, And fear of man is allowing other people to have control over you. And Pilate is a case study. 
he's vacillating, he's morally weak, he's just kind of blowing with the wind, he's allowing other people to control him. Now all he's trying to do is get out of this. He doesn't see Jesus as being guilty, uh, but he also wants to curry a little bit of favor uh, with the Jewish leaders. So we're going to rough Jesus up a little bit, scourge him, mock him, make fun of him, uh, and then declare, I find no guilt. I mean, who does that? Who says there's no guilt in this man and then does all these things to him? Uh, and then in verse 7, the Jews answered Pilate and said, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, Pilate hadn't heard this part yet, so verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. There's nothing better than fearful leaders. Uh, And he entered into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Earlier in Jesus' life, he said, there's no point throwing your pearls to swine. I think this was a moment like that for him. You've asked me what I did. I told you about the kingdom. You asked me if I was a king. I said, you're right. I told you, those who are of me are the ones who hear truth. You walked off. Now you've beaten me, mocked me, dressed me up like a king. And you want to know another question? No. A timely silence. Verse 10, so Pilate said, you don't speak to me. You don't know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. This is a good message for any government leader today. Any country, any nation, any state, any locality. Any authority that anyone has today in government positions, any power that anyone has, it is God-given. And God is accomplishing his purposes in things that make no sense to us and things that make sense to us. But Pilate has no authority apart from Jesus giving him that authority. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He does respond now. You don't have the authority you quite think you have. That's no different today. Our confidence today is in a sovereign God who is over all. And my prayer for government leaders all over the world is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. When in pride, he walked across his balcony and said, look what I did. And God said, that's just fine. You can spend seven years out in a field and you can see if you survive there. And verse 34 says that his eyes went up to heaven And his reason returned to him. Reason will return to our country when the eyes of people turn up towards God. The one who gives authority and the one who is over all. Timely silence 
timely words. In the middle of all this, Pilate tries to worm his way out of it by sending Jesus to Herod. And in Luke chapter 23, we see that dialogue take place. And this is what Nowen has to say. He says, silence is solitude practiced in action. How does Jesus practice this silence? It's, it's because he spent solitude alone with his father. Uh, and in uh, verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, this Herod, by the way, is the Herod, <clears throat> Herod the Great was the one who was in power when Jesus was born. Uh, we don't talk about this story much at Christmas time. It doesn't really vibe with the decorations and so forth. Uh, but Herod uh, slaughtered uh, every male child under two years old uh, in the Bethlehem region. He was, took out anybody that was a political threat. Uh, and this Herod that we're speaking of is that Herod's son. He wasn't as powerful as his father. He didn't rule as cruelly as his father, although he is the one that killed uh, and had John the uh, Baptist beheaded. Uh, but this is the Herod. He doesn't have as much jurisdiction, even as Pilate. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Uh, sometimes people are just looking for a circus act from Jesus. They, they just wanted to see him perform uh, for them, and that's what Herod uh, was like. He just wanted to see uh, Jesus perform. Uh, Jesus wasn't going with the charade to be his spectacle. So in verse 9, he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. He answered him nothing. Timely silence. And timely words. The chief priests, the scribes, they accuse him some more. Herod has him uh, treated with contempt, mocks him, does the same thing. These guys are gutless leaders. They can't find anything on Jesus, and yet they still keep uh, doing things to him. Now, how do we learn from Jesus to be able to have timely silence and timely words? How, how do we respond when people bring those false accusations against us, how can we grow in being strengthened and answer as he does? How can we avoid self-justifying, defending ourselves when those accusations come? I think there are two thoughts here. One, and I take this from a personal experience a few years ago, I was talking to somebody that's in a cult and... Uh, and I, I got really frustrated trying to talk with them. And I, I later I thought, that is ridiculous. My stomach was churning. Um, I was getting mad because I couldn't figure out how to respond to them. And that's what we do, right? It's when we don't know how to respond, we get all irritated about it. Try to talk louder and say the same thing. It doesn't work. And then it's more irritating. And I thought, okay, God, this is terrible because if I ever face any real persecution, how am I going to respond? I mean, I'm going to fall apart in the moment. And I just asked him. <clears throat> My wife has been so good that when I say things, she said, well, have you asked God for that? So I did. And I started asking the Lord. I said, will you give me the strength to respond like you do when there's accusations or I'm in conversations like that? And I will say over the last few years, I just sense a calm inside myself. Sometimes it gets a, a little bit adrift. 
but mostly a calm uh, in responding. And only God can do that because I'm not wired that way. I'm, I'm way more defensive, uh, and I just I really need God to do that work in me. And I have those fear man issues, so I got all kinds of junk going on. Um, but that's one way, and I think that happens and that muscle is built as we continue to stand firm in our faith. And the more conversations we have, the more God will build that muscle in us. Now, this, this week I read... It might have happened a couple weeks ago, but uh, one of the leading Christian adoption and foster care agencies um, has recently loosened their stance and their position on Christian marriage. Uh, And you can do nothing but surmise it's in part to continue to get government money. Somebody wrote about them and said, this is just the beginning, and that is correct. If we're going to follow Jesus and hold true to the teachings of Jesus in the Scripture, what is truth? It is going to cost more and more. Now, your option will be to buckle like we're watching churches and agencies one at a time cave. That, that is an option. That You won't pay a price for that. You will pay a price if you remain true to who Christ is and what it is that he taught. I don't know what that looks like for each of us, but we really are going to have to decide, is Jesus who he said he is, and is he worth it? And every one of us will be making those decisions in our workspaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our own families. Jesus shows us the way and how to do that with truth and with love. The second thing I would say that helps us learn and grow like Jesus in this is a statement now and makes that solitude is the furnace of transformation. So let's just say I'm standing firm, I haven't buckled, but I really hadn't found myself in a situation where it's going to cost me anything. How do I grow where I can be silent and I can be timely in my words? Well, it's in the place of solitude, alone with Jesus. It's lengthy times there, and it's there where we learn to be silent. It's there where our, root, our words get rooted so that when it's time, we have a powerful word to say. Several years ago, my older son, senior in high school, uh, about to head off to Texas A&M, and he started dating a girl his senior year. Now, in our mind, or I'll, I'll just speak for me, in my mind, I'm thinking, why did we have to do this? And it... But we we hung in there. And early in the summer, before he was to go off to school, he left. It was a Tuesday night. I don't know that I'll ever forget it. And he went off uh, on a date with her. He was back within an hour. She lives in Keller, and we live in Hearst. 
I thought, how did you get back so fast? And he said, we just broke up. There wasn't anything wrong. There wasn't anything we were aware of that was wrong in the, that would have them close to breaking up. And this is classic, my son. He said, well, we were in the truck, and she didn't have anything to say, and I didn't have anything to say. So I thought, I guess it's over. I said, okay, we'll take it. Maybe God was answering our prayers in a really odd way. I don't know. You know, that's what we do with God. We're sitting with him in our truck, and we don't really hear him, and we don't have much to say, and so we just move on. The only way to be like Jesus is to stay. And to stay in that space with him, whether you're hearing anything or not. And it's okay that it's a little uncomfortable. Jesus said, if you know the truth, then you'll hear me. It's worth asking the question why I'm not hearing anything. We cannot be scared of the discomfort of silence. Stay a little bit longer. You never know how God might show up. And it's in that space that we learn that much can be said without much being spoken. It's in that space that our words are no longer weak and powerless. And it's in that space that our souls are transformed. It's a good space to be in. Jesus knew when to be silent. He knew when to speak. He did not go silent on us on that old rugged cross. Let's not go silent on him as we walk through our days. Father, thank you for the power of your word. And I pray, God, this morning that we'll have found strength here encouragement, we have the greatest hope and the greatest peace of all. And Father, I pray we'd walk in it, that we'd walk in the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that we would walk in the grace and love, truth, Jesus. That we would know with confidence who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, what our purpose is today, that we glorify you today, we love you today, love our neighbor today. Show us how to do that. Just help us, please. I pray, Father, where our hearts need to be convicted today and where we need to repent, will you help us not be afraid of that? Just bring it to you. Father, where you want to affirm and encourage our hearts today, will you do that? Will you strengthen and encourage us today in you? Will you give us a boldness this week to be like Jesus and allow you to live through our lives and that we'd be aware of what you're doing around us and sensitive and, and not miss a moment to invite or share or talk. When people accuse that we would be quiet and still and then offer words at the right time that are helpful, powerful, and strong. 
So we thank you today. And Jesus, we're grateful uh, that things did not end on this Friday. But just like you were raised from the dead on that third day, thank you for taking our dead hearts and raising them to life. Will you please do more? I pray in Jesus' name. Let's be quiet before the Lord. What I've described today is why we do this at the end of our services, just to have a, some space uh, to sit before the Lord. Let's, let's do so and see if he has anything to say to us. You've been listening to the 121 Community Church Podcast. For more information about 121, visit us at 121cc.com.